Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, February the 28th, 2023. It's always nice to see old friends on the show, people who have been on before come back. One of my favorite guests... Um, is a young man and uh, maybe an old man or a young old man or an old young man called Stephen Kotler. Uh, he's a best-selling writer. He's written many books, uh, including Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. Uh, he was last on talking about the Devil's Dictionary, um, a fiction uh, book about uh, the near future, about the evolution of empathy, we had a great conversation about humans and animals and all sorts of other things, uh, which we could imagine in the near future. And now he's back with a nonfiction book, uh, Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. Uh, and I often think people who flit between fiction and nonfiction often get them confused. Often their fiction is really nonfiction and their nonfiction is really fiction. Uh, Stephen lives in that world somehow between fiction and nonfiction. He's joining us uh, from uh, the Nevada side of, uh, of Tahoe, Lake Tahoe. We joked before, the place that was formerly known as the future. Now I don't know what it is. Uh, Stephen, welcome. It's good to see you, Andrew. And as I joked earlier, i got to get this joke in too. Uh, you, you're looking just as young as you did a year or two ago when you first uh, appeared on the show. How, how do you maintain your eternal youth, Stephen? Funny you should ask, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Is it on sale? Can we buy it from you? How old are you, by the way? I am 55. 55. You look at least 54 and a half. Thank so you, how do you, how do you stay so young? I, uh, serious question? Uh, the new that, book all is my about... questions are serious, Stephen. All right, then. The new book is about peak performance aging. And uh, it, uh, it's built around uh, the idea that most of the traditional thinking on aging, which is what I will call the long, slow rot theory, right? It's that all of our mental skills, all our physical skills, they decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. Over the past 20 years, we've sort of driven a bus through that old story, but the news source hasn't leaked out to the rest of the world. So it turns out that all the skills we used to think declined over time, we now know they're use it or lose it skills. And if you never start using these skills, uh, training these skills, you can hold on to them, even advance them far longer than anybody thought possible. So I guess the answer to your question is I'm training all the skills it requires to stay young. Yeah, and the book is about uh, how to stay young, and, and it's an autobiography. It's a memoir of you doing it, and gnarly in itself. The book is called Nar Country, um, and, and it's not as easy as it sounds, Stephen. I mean, if it was, then you, there would be no need for the book. How hard has it been for you to stay young? Or at I least say rad. The, the short, I love the uh, subtitle of the book, Nar Country, um, uh growing old staying rad i assume rad is is another word for young or maybe rad and young aren't the same rad is a it's another uh it's so uh 
the title NAR country is action sports slang, right? NAR is short for gnarly and it's defined as any environment that's high in perceived risk, high in actual risk, which turns out is a, is a really great description of our later years. Rad is also action sports slang. It's short for radical, meaning crazy, amazing, impossible, that sort of thing. Um, so that's the title. That's the rad. Was there a question behind that? Well, the question was that the book is is not just a manual. It's about. Um, oh, you asked how hard it's it was. about you. I mean, you you yeah. put yourself through it, and it, it's yeah. not easy, is it? I mean, no, if it was, then there'd be no need for the book, and um, we would all be out being young. I think you make a great point. I think there's two point. There, there's sort of two responses to that. One. I think most of us, when it comes to peak performance aging, that sort of thing, we don't, we don't, we've been sort of given the wrong formulas. We're reaching for the wrong tools, which is one of the reasons it, it's fairly difficult. But I say this in the book, like we, we can kick ass until we kick the bucket, but you have to train for, for your later years, like a professional athlete. Now I don't just mean train hard. Uh, I mean, train smart much more than, than train hard, but you are right. It is, it is not easy, but I also think in a sense it's mandatory because one of the things we do know is while a, much as possible in our later years, by the time you get to your fifties, if you're not moving forwards, you're going backwards. Um, as Dylan put it in another way, um, mm -hmm. you're in the business of training people, training performance. Is this mental or physical? I, I have some friends um, who are physically incredibly fit and, and, and rather old mentally and others who are physically rather old, but young mentally, do the, are the two intimately bound up together? I think they're intimately bound up together. So let me, uh, let me just walk you through a couple of things that we've discovered and the limits on these things. And it's, I think it speaks sort of right to what you're seeing. So um, we know you can hang on to your mental faculties and we know you can hang on to your physical faculties, but you have to literally train everything. And on the physical side, it's it's quite a list, right? The, if the You want to sort of hit all the five categories of so-called functional fitness, strength, stamina, agility, balance, uh, and flexibility. And the, the World Health Organization, take it or leave it, but they have like actual recommendations for each of those categories on a weekly basis. And the same thing is true on the mental side, right? We know the sort of the best way to stave off cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's is lifelong learning, wisdom and expertise in particular. And the reason these skills are so important is as we age, a lot of the damage that takes place takes place in the prefrontal cortex, right? The part of the brain that's right behind our forehead, very powerful part of the brain, also the newest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. So like the most vulnerable, the decline and both wisdom and expertise uh, form these huge neural networks across the prefrontal cortex. And there's a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of redundancy in these networks. So the brain doesn't ever figure out one way to do something. It likes to figure out multiple ways to do the same thing and recode it and recode it. And that happens with wisdom and expertise. So you end up really protecting the brain against decline this way. But the point of these all this is you have to do all of it, right? If you're training up the brain and, and, and the body's going away, 
Uh, you've got one set of difficulties and, and you're going to end up losing uh, cognition in the end anyways because of how tightly linked the brain and the body are and vice versa. So you mentioned earlier that it's hard work. How hard to work? I mean, do people have to dedicate themselves several hours a day, a week, a year to this? What's the regime that you're suggesting in our country? So if we want to summarize peak performance aging in a sentence, and, and, I'll, and I'll define these words as we go along, but you want to regularly engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. And we can unpack all those various things, but that's sort of the formula. And dynamic, when I, when I talk about dynamic, deliberate play, that's the word I want to zero in on because it's part of the answer to your question. Dynamic is a shorthand for all five categories of functional fitness. So um, plus when you have dynamic motion, dynamic motion actually produces more neurogenesis and more angiogenesis or the birth of new neurons and the birth of the vasculature that supports those new neurons, sort of feeds those new neurons. Uh, so there's, there's benefits to dynamic play. You have a choice, right? You can train all those skills independently. You can train strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. But the World Health Organization says, look, you need about 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic activity a week. You need two strength training days and three balance, flexibility, and agility days. So if you put that together, you get exactly where you came out, right? That's just two hours of physical training a day. And then there's still all this other stuff. The other sides of that equation that you have to do for mental fitness or training smart, you can pick a single activity that hits all five of those categories at once. For example, I, in the book I write about skiing, that's just one example. Tennis, badminton, these are, these are other dynamic activities. And, and to see this bear out, the Mayo Clinic did a really interesting study where they looked at how much longevity you get from different kinds of physical activities. You join a health club, you get about an extra year and a half of life. You Swimming, jogging, it's about three years. But you go to tennis or badminton and it's six years or nine years respectively. And it's because these are dynamic activities. They're also social activities. So you're getting uh, all the benefits of a robust social connection as well, which is important for peak performance aging. But we'll, we can come back to that idea in a second. We did a show, I'm sure you know his work, with Sergey Young, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur on the Science and Ethics of Living to 200, controversial book, The Science and Technology of Growing Old. Uh, I've also done lots of shows critical of guys like Young. Uh, Douglas Rushkoff has a new book out on survival of the richest. Uh, some people might look at a book like yours, Stephen, and say this is a manual for wealthy tech guys like yourself and your friends like Peter Diamantis and Ray Kurzweil. Is there a class element here as well as a gendered element? Is it a very wealthy male tech kind of thing? So that's interesting. Um, and so I, uh, first of all, a, a lot of criticism, that's you're aiming stuff at the longevity science and the regenerative medicine movement. And uh, I think I would tend to agree with a lot of your criticisms, by the way. Uh, though I, there was a couple things I'd like to point out about that side of it. But I actually think that the formula, the stuff that I'm working on is very much for everybody. If you notice, 
most people, when they think about peak performance aging, go where your brain just went. They go to supplements or biotech or, you know, expensive treatment with, with stem cells and those sorts of things. And I do cover that at the very end of the book a little bit. But most of the book, I mean, if you notice my formula for peak performance aging, you regularly engage in challenging, creative and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That is at everybody's disposal. There's no there's no money in that equation. Very, very democratized formula. Well, um, I don't know. Playing tennis or badminton. I mean, if you're living in the inner city and you're so, a single but, parent, that's, that's yeah, a but, So one. tennis or badminton is out. If you're living in the inner city and you want to play basketball, I said you have to train the five categories of functional fitness. You can do that in a prison cell if you want to. Um, now, the, the flip side, Andrew, the other thing I want to point out, and I don't necessarily... I don't know if this is true or not, but historically with biotechnology and, 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 and folks like, you know, the stuff that Peter Diamandis, who obviously is a friend of mine and my writing partner, Kurzweil Kurzweil and and Tony Robbins and all like all their stuff. If you look at regenerative medicine and I'll give you a, a very specific example on this, it is, these are technologies that are, are for the wealthy at the, at the front end. Absolutely for sure. Um, but they democratize very, very quickly. And let me give you an example. So I write about regenerative medicine. Five years ago, the cutting edge of regenerative medicine was PRP therapy, platelet-enriched plasma. Today, it's exosomes and placental matrix, which uh, kind of a stem cell treatment. But five years ago, it was $10,000, $20,000 to get PRP, and you had to spend a lot of money, and you couldn't get it from a, a regular doctor. Insurance didn't cover it. And this year... You know, my 80-year-old mother, who has mediocre health care, um, got PRP through her doctor and went covered by insurance. So this stuff moves very quickly. It's become, it gets democratized very quickly, and the price tends to become semi-affordable for all kind of thing. So I don't think of it as, as kind of this elitist idea that, that we're hearing about so much. I'm, I just question the narrative because that just hasn't been. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just speaking on behalf of some people perhaps listening to this. It's interesting you mentioned plasma. We did a show yesterday with an American journalist, um, uh, Kathleen McLaughlin. She has a new book out called Blood Money, which is about the plasma industry and the way in which poor people are selling their blood to plasma companies who are mostly exporting. And we also talked about transmission of plasma and Peter Thiel and all that sort of stuff. Is that the next frontier in some way, Stephen? So I don't, that, you, you've skipped past my knowledge a little bit. Um, Platelet-rich plasma, they, they take your own blood spin it in a centrifuge and re-inject you with the, with the serum. So there's no, nobody, you're not buying or selling plasma. They're using your own. Um, and, and now that you've sort of moved into kind of the cutting edge of biotech, I think there are going to be, a, there's going to be a ton of stuff that you see people experimenting with it, whether it's the wealthy billionaire crowd um, or the, the biohacking crowd um, I think there's always going to be that. I, you know, a, a lot of that stuff is still controversial. What's right? What's wrong? What I say in in our country is, when it comes to those things, when it gets to like bones, ligaments, and tendons, we've sort of figured that stuff out. And at this point, if you're injuring bones, ligaments, and tendons, we probably have a way to solve it 
It may not yet be affordable for everybody, but it's coming very quickly. Once you get beyond that into the category that you're moving into, um, most of it to me is vaporware still. And, I, and, and it's not there. It's not real. There's too much controversy. And, you know, I walk away from it and am very, you know, a little allergic to it. Uh, Stephen, um, the subtitle of the book is Nar uh, Country is Growing Old, Staying Rad. And, and then on your website, uh, you know, you can't fight your biology. You have to forgive your history. And it's interesting. You seem to be perhaps in your own way being rad, turning things upside down. The standard view of old age is we become wise somehow. We learn from our history. We had a show a couple of years ago with a a writer, Richard Leader, on growing into yourself with age. Uh, he had a book out, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? It's an interesting view of, of getting old and of learning from one's life. Are you suggesting that, in a way, your NAR country is an escape from, from that traditional view of age, the age-old view we have, excusing the pun, that we learn from our life and therefore the wisdom of old age is derived from all our different experiences. So uh, I, you're, I think you're totally right. And it, and it goes farther than that. So let me just build on that first, which is one of the things that we've learned over the past couple of decades, um, rather than a period of, of sort of decline, as we enter our 50s, there's sort of really cool and profound changes in how the brain processes information. The two sides of the brain start to work together like never before. We colonize underutilized areas in the brain. We get some genetic benefits. The downstream result of that, and this is the, this is the question mark, if we get it right, we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence, abstract reasoning, critical thinking, creativity, including divergent thinking, which is sort of the hardest part of creativity to train for. Um, you get access to whole new levels of empathy and wisdom. Um, and so we, that stuff starts to really come online uh, in our 50s. And I mentioned earlier that wisdom is one of the things that is actually neuroprotective against cognitive decline. So it seems like it's serving a double function. And just to sort of build on top of uh, your knowledge, one of the things that we humans defy the genetic paradigm, the genetic paradigm is, is you reproduce, you have your offspring, and then you die off very quickly so as not to take food out of your offspring's mouth. We tend to stick around a lot longer. And uh, one of the interesting things they figured out is one of the main reasons is wisdom. And it's something called the grandmother hypothesis. And it's a really cool bit of uh, science where they figured out that kids who have active grandparents in their lives, when the kids reach the age that they're having children, the ones who are around active grandparents because they got that transmission of wisdom are going to be more fecund and have a greater chance of having more children, um, which uh, is, is sort of what backs up the evolutionary argument for, for wisdom playing a biological role. So, and the, but the point I'm making is I think it's because of these faculties that we get to stay rad for longer. I'll give you an example from a friend of mine. So uh, a friend of mine is, is Rebecca Rush. She, she's often talked about as the queen of pain. She's a seven-time world champion, mountain biker. She's won world championships in, in, in sports. You didn't even know they're, they're in categories like orienteering and adventure racing. Anyways, 
she just completed the uh, human powered Iditarod. So it's the same, it's the dog race in Alaska, but they, they go on bikes solo and she just won this year at age, I want to say 54, she might've been 55. And the press made her age the story. Rebecca Rush wins Iditarod despite being 55. And when you talk to her, she'll tell you, I, I could never have done this at 45 or 35 or 25. I won because I'm 55. I won because of all the wisdom that I've accumulated over the years. That's what allowed me to do this. That's a great example of, of sort of how, you know, these characteristics that we're linking to old actually, uh, actually may, may be tied to, to staying right. It's interesting you bring up Rebecca Rush. Uh, I know about her. I've never had her on the show. Actually, maybe you can introduce me. Uh, it'd be good to get her on the show. What about the... Um, the gendered element, uh, Steve, uh, Stephen. Uh, I mean, some people, again, might be thinking this is a very male thing, but clearly that you have a lot of female friends who are into this too. Does it break down 50-50 with men and women? I don't know if it breaks down 50-50 with men and women. What I can tell you, so, um, you know, we ran a bunch of experiments not, uh, to, to sort of bear out some of the, some of the thinking, and um, the experiments you know, we're, we just sort of opened it up and the study groups were basically broken down 50, 50, a little, maybe 60, 40. Um, but it, it's certainly, uh, all, I think all this stuff is very applicable to women. And one thing that I have noticed is if you talk to men about sort of some of the superpowers of aging, right. And you talk about, uh, extra intelligence, maybe creativity, maybe empathy and wisdom, they, maybe they hear it, maybe they don't. Women who have a deep understanding of sort of the value of empathy and wisdom tend to really hear that and really like recognize that as a sort of a valuable superpower. So in a sense, I think it's easier to talk to women about some of these ideas than men. This is a family show, Stephen. I don't want to talk too much about sex, but is there a sexual element to this too? Uh. I, I mean, it's not something I cover in the book, but it, you know, there's the well, extreme performance improvement. A lot of people have, uh, not me, of course, but a lot of people have dirty minds and they think, wow, I'm going to read Stephen's book. I want extreme performance improvement. Well, and, you know, new levels of empathy and wisdom, right? <laughs> imagine, imagine the benefits to intimacy. Let's just stop there. Okay. Well, as I said, it's a children's, uh, this is a family show. So family we'll just show. imagine it. We won't actually practice. Is there something broader going on in our culture, Stephen? You're always ahead of the charts. You live in the future. Uh, you know, the futurists always claim to live in the future, but you really seem to, to do that. Back in the 60s, of course, the anthem perhaps of the 1960s was the Who's My Generation? I hope I die before I get old. But a lot of them didn't die. The Rolling Stones are still around, still touring in their 80s. Uh, Charlie Watts just died. I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen. He's in his 70s in San Francisco at the end of the year. Someone, a friend of mine saw him, said he was amazingly agile. Has something changed in the culture uh, that people... Yeah. That, yeah a, I mean, yeah. The, the Stones and Springsteen and, and so many others, uh, in contrast, of course, with... The Who and Keith Moon, who died young, but you know some of them are around. Roger Daltrey is still around. You know, um, uh, I, I first of all, we have far 
more, and maybe that, that we've always had this many, but thanks to social media um, and media in general, we're just seeing more of it. I don't know. But we definitely have fabulous examples of people sort of killing it late in life. And really, Springsteen's a, a good example. I'm not the biggest Springsteen fan in the world, but you know, I've been. No, I'm going to have to throw you off the show now. No, no, I like him. I like him. And I, and, but, and I want to say that like what he's been doing lately is really amazing. He's not, it's not, this is not just sort of rehashing old stuff. He's really sort of pushing his music into neat directions. And I think we're getting great examples of people who are staying vibrant, staying re relevant much longer. But I, the other thing I want to point out is, you know, I've wrote, written a lot. I do a lot of training of, of organizations and I've written a lot of books um, that have caught the attention of CEOs. So I spent a long time talking to CEOs and be running a peak performance aging organization. One of the things we end up talking about is, you know, what are the skills that, that we look for in an employee? Can we hire for it? Can we screen for it? Can we train for it? And invariably what I hear are, we're looking for employees who are intelligent and creative and innovative because we got to keep pace sort of in a blitzkrieg market. And the other thing I hear about is I want empathy and wisdom in employees and the empathy and the wisdom comes down to, you know, basic things like psychological safety, which we all know is so important in business, <laughs> but without empathy and wisdom, you don't have collaboration or cooperation, which is team performance, which is what runs our companies. And I think Bezos came up with the mantra for the 21st century, 21st century business, which is, you know, customer centric thinking is the, is the mantra. And without empathy or wisdom, nobody can think like their customers. And my point is that I, not only are we seeing these examples in our culture, I think there's a business revolution waiting to happen. I think it's the inverse of that my generation idea, because a lot of the skills that that we need to thrive in the 21st century are the exact skills that start showing up once we get to 50. Now, you have to get it right, right? One that, That's one of the things. You, it, these are not automatic skills that just become yours as we turn 50. There are certain gateways of adult development that you have to pass through to really unlock it. So it's nothing's for free, um, not even in our biology. So it, it, it's on us to, to take the steps to train these things up. But I do think um, there's a big sort of cultural shift coming um, in the value that we see uh, for older adults, both in society and in business. Yeah. And I think there's the other side of the coin is actually darker in all seriousness. Maybe you got it wrong. You, you should have you should have had the. Uh, you should have written a book about young people, our country, growing young, staying rad. Because just as the fifty-year-olds, the Jaggers and the Springsteen seem to be coming stronger, wiser, more empathetic, to use your word, although fortunately you didn't use the A word, authentic, which is an even worse word than empathy. But we all know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, the twenty-somethings are increasingly anxious. They're not able to go out. I saw a stat recently that, I don't know, 50% of men under 30 have never had a sexual experience, spend their time on the internet looking at pornography. So the, the glass may be half full, Stephen, when it comes to older people, but what about younger people? Is there a connection between this anxiety crisis, this epidemic of anxiety that seems to have um, inflicted the young and our generation, which seems to be growing old in a very useful way. That is a, so it's an interesting question. Let, let, 
I come at it a couple different ways. Um, it's a good question, though. Um, first, one of the things that we know is uh, peak performance aging uh, starts young. So this is interesting. Um, and so I, I mentioned earlier that you, the, those super cognitive superpowers in our 50s, they're not automatically ours. And to get them, by 30, you need to pass through the there's adult development gateways. So by 30, you got to solve the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world. By 40, it's about sort of match fit, which is an economist term for like a tight link between your identity and your vocation. And then by 50, um, forgiveness matters. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive others. And uh, in your 50s, you actually need to engage in creative activities. These are sort of the Doorways and happens if you miss those doors, then you're stuck. Then you're in prison. Yeah, right? you, you're, you are kind of stuck. I mean, the good news is we have sort of tools to help people through those doorways, but you are definitely you are definitely stuck. And let me let me put a bigger point on it, Andrew, to, to exactly what you're talking about, because this is weird. So one of the first bits of research to sort of show up and really start to tilt uh, our thinking about the second half of our lives this famous study done on the sisters of Notre Dame, this the group of nuns sort of in the, in the United States um, that uh, essentially donated their, their lives and their brains to science. They were tested. We were trying to figure out why some people hold on to sort of cognitive function and physical function late in life and why others succumb to Alzheimer's and dementia. And they analyzed the, the nuns every year and the nuns donated their brains to science and Afterwards, they were autopsied and a lot of stuff came out of it. One of the things that came out of it is when most of the nuns uh, joined the, the, the nunnery, I bet, basically, there's a word here. I'm not, I don't know what it is. Um, they submitted an autobiographical essay. And then researchers went back and looked at, uh, they analyzed these essays, which were on average submitted when people were 22 to see if there were commonalities among the people who ended up living the longest. And one of the things they found is that optimism levels in your 20s is predictive of mortality 60 years later. And people who were more optimistic in their 20s ended up outliving the others by about 10 years and suffering a lot less cognitive decline and dementia and that sort of thing. The same thing is true with education levels going all, all the way sort of back. So, so, uh, so optimism is a good thing. The future is better than you think is a, is a biological, it's biologically beneficial as well as making us more cheerful. It does. And, and mindset plays a huge role in peak performance aging as well. And, I, you know, optimism, double-edged sword, right? You, you're going for a rational optimism, I, I think. I just think the correlation is interesting. And what it, where it gets really wild is when you start thinking about the hyper-anxious 20-year-olds that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's your next book, Stephen. I want a new book now on uh, on, on how to, to challenge, undermine, fix, cure anxiety of young people. So maybe we'll have that next year. Next year. Absolutely. I'll get busy.